Okay, <laughs> looks like we're live. There's been a few issues lately with this stuff, so it's seeming, seemingly we've resolved it. So hello, hello and welcome. Welcome to VUX World. Uh, I'm joined, as always, by the one and only Dustin Coates. Dustin, how do? Okay, it's going well. How are you? I'm very well, very well. Slightly less stressed now that we're actually live and I know right. things are working properly. Uh, yeah, how's things with you? Yeah, it's going well. I think the uh, very excited about this about this uh, this show today. Obviously, one of the nice things about the delay is got to see the new Echo. It's a sphere. I'm sure, we'll have a lot to wow. talk about that soon. But uh, we're talking about something uh, more businessy today with Salesforce, huh? An actual an actual um, globe. You mean? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it looks like three quarters of a basketball. Wow, interesting. Yeah. Well, we'll have to have a look at that. I'll maybe dig it up in a minute. But uh, yes, you, you, yes, we are talking something more businessy. And uh, over the last few weeks and months, uh, for the regular listeners of the podcast, you've probably noticed that we've been kind of delving into some of the more kind of enterprise use cases of voice. Dustin, I think you call it the, the boring stuff, but the important stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, uh, the boring, the boring money makers. Boring money makers. That's it. So we've been looking for boring money makers, and um, you know we've been looking at IVR systems. We've been looking at kind of chat interfaces and all that kind of stuff. And there's been a whole load of activity going on um, in in the sort of enterprise space. You know, with with Amazon Connect and Dialogflow integrating with all these IVR systems, and you know, huge BPO companies are kind of you know using conversational AI. And Salesforce, you know, a huge company used in all kinds of different industries. Um, fundamental platform that the businesses run on top of essentially. And we had Einstein and Einstein was really cool and it got a lot of attention. And then kind of Einstein seemed to sort of recede a little bit and we were wondering what was going on. But then they've announced a huge partnership with Amazon Connect. And so now Amazon Connect and Salesforce go together hand in hand. And the Einstein bot builder is you know, it's it's enabling organizations and our guest today, Greg Bennett, is going to talk even more about this, but enabling you to put a conversational interface on your website that integrates deeply with Salesforce. And I think the potential for that is absolutely huge. So today we're going to delve into what all that's about and crucially, how you can do it. How can you design conversations for Einstein Bot Builder? And I mean, Greg's got some immense experience and a really, really interesting background. So we're also going to be delving into some of the conversation design methodologies and best practice and insights that he's learned through designing bots for Salesforce. So looking forward to it. Dustin, if you could leave this conversation with one thing, one new piece of insight, one new bit of information, what would it be? Yeah, I, man, I think I would like to know more about what Salesforce is offering because I think you're right. A lot of people don't realize just how many tentacles there are in sales from Salesforce into the business world. And so I'd be interested in learning a, a lot more about, hey, what is this for? Who is this for? And how can I take these learnings and apply them generally, even if I'm not going with Salesforce, what can I learn about conversation design and how can I bring that into my business? Cool. Well, without further ado then, please welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Greg Bennett from Salesforce. Greg, welcome. Thanks so much, Kane. And it's great to chat with you and Dustin today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being our first, uh, the first kind of guest on our kind of more pro setup. I feel like I feel like we've gone up a level, Dustin. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a uh, high, high class. So, so welcome, Greg. Thank you. It feels very fancy. <laughs> <laughs> and Greg, we were just saying there, you're you're over there in California, and hopefully, and thankfully, things are starting to chill out over there now, are they? Physically yes. and metaphorically. Yes, exactly. So at least in Northern California and in the Bay Area, the, the sky is blue. I can see it from my window. Um, the air is clear and I'm very grateful for that. Nice. So Greg, you are conversation design principal at Salesforce. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what that role entails and what you do on a daily basis at Salesforce? And then maybe Dustin, you can you can take over and delve into some of those questions about what you were saying there in terms of what Salesforce does. So over to you, sure. Greg. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the role, what you do and, and what you spend your time doing at Salesforce? Yes. So as you mentioned, I'm conversation design principal at Salesforce and I am Salesforce's first conversation designer, which is very exciting. Um, I've been kind of moonlighting as a conversation designer at Salesforce for a couple years now. 
I was previously working in a user research capacity at Salesforce, and that was how I got involved with Einstein Bots and Einstein Bot Builder. Um, but more and more, as I started interacting with customers uh, who were essentially building on our platform, bots that are facing their customers, I received a lot of questions about the experience of the conversation. Not just what should my bot say, but how should my bot say it? And that's really when I started to draw on my academic background in linguistics to inform how we go about making those suggestions. So academically, I studied a subfield of linguistics called interactional sociolinguistics, um, which is basically just a big fancy term for saying how language gets used in everyday interaction. Um, and the sort of patterns of conversation and patterns of language that I understand from that research go a long way in terms of informing how I can essentially guide our customers and help shape our product to adhere to how users expect conversational behavior to work. Um, things like pause length and um, expressing, you know, uh, intonation and tone, but through text, um, all of these sort of different norms um, or patterns of language that essentially get um, translated into text-based conversation. Um, so after doing that for a couple of years and also working on our voice products at the time, uh, I was able to kind of get executive leadership buy-in on investing in conversation design as an actual practice for the first time at Salesforce. So this May, I started the conversation design practice. Um, I'm our first conversation designer. And essentially what I do now is I... I cut across all of our product suite, whether that's bots or whether it's analytics or sales cloud, anyone who touches a conversational aspect where conversation itself is the means of interacting with a customer um, and understand how we can better shape the experience conversationally. So how do we adhere to users' expectations of how conversation flows, but also how can we uh, sort of accurately represent conversation in terms of metrics and tracking um, what constitutes a good conversation. Um, I think it's very interesting because I've noticed, um, even in my previous work uh, at Microsoft on Cortana, that a lot of businesses are very interested in, like, you know, success metrics around conversation. But as a linguist, I've been trained to essentially understand that conversation is just highly variable. There's no one right way to do it. And that's essentially what I'm trying to infuse in our product process at Salesforce across the products, whether it's producing language or analyzing it. And so my day to day will be working on different product teams, uh, helping to either produce the conversation designs directly or consult on their approach to the product in terms of analytics and um, uh, that that piece. And so for, for those people who think of Salesforce still as a tool for sales teams, a, a CRM, they might be asking, why does Salesforce need a conversational designer? But uh, I know Salesforce is a lot more than that. So really, what is Salesforce doing in conversational? Uh, yeah, is it internal? Is it external facing? Yeah, what's conversation in Salesforce look like? Yeah, I, so it's, I find it really interesting because... For me, I think about CRM, it's our stock ticker, but it's also the space that we are best known for and operate the most in, and it stands for customer relationship management. And as a linguist, particularly as an interactional sociolinguist, I firmly believe that conversation is the currency with which we negotiate and develop relationships. So from my perspective at Salesforce, conversation will always be core to our business. And it's more about trying to figure out how do we scale and operationalize it in a way that can help our customers better understand their and manage their relationships with their users. So. I think from that angle, it makes sense that we invest even deeper in conversation, which is something that we're doing certainly with conversation design, but also with Einstein bots. So in particular, um, over the last six months, we've seen use of messaging channels on our platform grow more than 600%, and particularly usage of Einstein bots uh, has grown 176%. So the growth is astronomical, and I think that's only really you know, continues to be prescient and indicative of where the trend is going with our customers and the industry in terms of in increasing importance on conversation as an experience. 
what are people using Einstein bots for? A lot of, I think, uh, our main, mainly our customers are using it for customer service uh, related intents. So for example, uh, return an item, check the status of an issue, uh, report an issue of some kind. Um, so, and I think traditionally because Einstein bots was positioned as a product for customer service, that's where we see a lot of, um, our sort of main growth. Now, I think if we think about the, you know, the world we're living in now with lockdowns across the globe, um, more and more of customer service has had to become digital, just like everything else. Um, and it's about trying to figure out how to essentially keep that connection alive and negotiate that relationship despite it happening over a digital space. And I think essentially that's why we're seeing this bigger influx of, com of customer service requests. And in order to scale that, that's where chatbots come into play. And presumably, given that the Einstein bot builder is part of Salesforce, I'm assuming that a lot of the use cases you're seeing isn't just the kind of simplistic, you know, opening hours kind of content based stuff where you can just go and grab some copy from a web page or from a knowledge base or whatever. But presumably there is some deep integrations in there where you can actually do some some pretty good, you know, transactions that integrate with the whole of the Salesforce suite. Yes, I think that's really what the power of the Einstein bot builder really is, is that you can leverage what exists in your CRM in Salesforce to better inform and manage the conversation that you're having through a bot. So, for example, I mean, you can certainly do those things. I think those are in line with helping to offload some of the more like tier zero, tier one, easier level, um, repetitive uh, customer issues that agents might receive in a customer service organization. Um that I think is certainly like, you know, calling information from knowledge articles, um, providing store hours, et cetera. I think that there's value in having that in a bot as well. Um, and I don't think from a conversation design perspective, I don't think it's as simple as just taking the knowledge article and then putting it in the chat. But how do you conversationalize a different text? Uh, because the knowledge article itself is not templated as a conversation. How do you then redesign that? So there's that challenge there. But I think in terms of slightly more complex use cases, when we think about something like I want to report an issue for a customer, it seems very straightforward. But if we're thinking about a platform that actually can be quite technologically complex um, and the benefit of having Einstein bots embedded in Salesforce is that they can immediately write cases to the platform in relation to a particular contact or account. So that way it all kind of lives and is connected together. And I think that's really where the, the power of the product lies. Interesting. So you, you mentioned earlier that, that you kind of work um, across, kind of horizontally across the organization with, with lots of different teams in Salesforce and you do some external work, some internal kind of work. Do you also then, as part of your role and maybe we can touch on whether there's a team behind as well because i appreciate being the first one you always will start alone and then hopefully you know things things kind of grow from there so it'll be interesting to know whether whether you do have a team or whether there's plans for a team and stuff like that but firstly when you when you're kind of working with those external folks are you there to to do the conversation design for them so they've obviously got salesforce they've obviously they're interested in some shape or form in in, in chatbots and the bot builder and, and conversational ai um so do you work with them to do the actual conversation design pieces? I think it depends on the engagement. Um, so we actually have a dedicated team within Salesforce design and experience whose essentially their role is to work directly with customers on the design work. Um, and so what I do is I kind of work with them. Um, I'm in, in an effort to stay because right now, because I'm the only one, my hope is to kind of scale through advising um, in certain capacities. So when it comes to customer engagements, if I, you know, can take them on directly, then sure. But if they're already engaged with that team, then I don't think it makes sense for me to kind of come in and, you know, essentially boot out another designer. Um, and so in that regard, what I'll do is I'll partner with that designer and say, hey, here's sort of how I operationalize conversation design, the philosophy of it at Salesforce, here are the components that I use, here's my entire sort of toolkit, use it as you please, and I'm happy to continue to advise and consult. Um, and I think that's just sort of how I like to work. I like to work in partnership and I wanna make sure to kind of grow conversation design as a mindset, not just as a, a team. Although I certainly do have plans to grow the conversation design team 
in terms of uh, headcount and people as well in the future. Interesting. Conversation design is a mindset. That's a that's an interesting concept. Is that is that when you say conversation design as a, as a mindset, presumably there is an element of within Salesforce uh, and part of your role is in kind of like changing that culture to raise the awareness about the potential and all that kind of stuff of conversation design and having that kind of conversation first mindset is something I think that would, that would help. Is is that kind of part of the, part of the aim is to, when you mentioned that the, you know, the knowledge based content might be written to be read and not written to be spoken or listened to or whatever, mm-hmm. is that all kind of part of what, what your kind of your role is there is to change that culture and start people getting people thinking of it differently yes actually now that you mention it i hadn't really actively thought of it that way but now that you're mentioning it i actually am thinking back on a lot of that angle on my work as well which is almost like as an advocate for reshaping how we as a company think about language so i think that you know growing up we are kind of socialized to be very prescriptive about how language works like there's a right and a wrong way to do it that you know, if you're spelling it in a different way, it's wrong. Or if you're saying things in this way, you're somehow wrong. Um, that is not how linguists are trained and that's not how they look at language. Linguistics is founded on the principle of descriptivism where you just describe what you see. So it's totally okay that people say the word irregardless, even though like maybe it's not actually in the dictionary, but there are people who are using it. They gain meaning from it. They're able to communicate in conversation. And that's essentially the type of mind frame I'm trying to shift at Salesforce, where I'm trying to show my, my colleagues, essentially, there's no one way to do it. There's no one right way to do it. And how can we sort of approach it holistically, understanding that conversation that discourse in different contexts have different constraints, different patterns, and how do we leverage them to our advantage? Um, So knowledge articles, they're great for being consumed as this sort of um, non-conversational content and that you, you know, you sort of read the articles and you're not necessarily engaging back with the content itself. Um, But when it comes to, you know, trying to explain how to do something in chat, sending the article on its own feels a little stiff because you're already having this turn-based interaction with the bot. So how do you then make a knowledge article whereby its its function is to f- fulfill the intent of learning how to do something, explain something in a conversational way? Hmm. So, so that from from listening to you speak, and I agree that that you know part of the, I think it was Babylon Health that was saying that the the approach they're taking to their entirety of their website content is to write it in a more conversational way. Um, I mean, we've we, we've worked. I mean, right now working on a project, Dustin, isn't it, where we're kind of taking website content and moving it into a kind of voice. Uh, a voice kind of environment and mm-hmm. very rarely can you just pick something up and put it there uh, and expect it right. to work you know exactly like you wouldn't want to just read the article out loud and I, I used to be a teacher so I think of this as well that I don't really see like you know I wouldn't sit in front of a class and just read the textbook to them they can do that on their own my job there is to facilitate a discussion about whatever thing we're trying to learn about and I think it's very similar when it comes to knowledge and knowledge articles and conversation where sure they can read that, but it's not my job as a conversationalist to just read that article to them, but rather provide space. So that way there's because of the turn taking nature of conversation provide space for them to respond. And I think that's really sort of the key interactional difference between the two channels essentially. Hmm. And so how do you go about convincing these teams when you come in? Is it something where they pull you in because they already know that there's a need or are you going and being a little more proactive? And I think the reason I ask is because it might be a big ask for them to say, hey, you've got all this content and, you know, you should be going to conversational. So you've got to rewrite all of that content as well. How do you convince them? And is there a way that they can do it incrementally? Yeah. Um, so I do both. Um, there are some teams who will reach out to me proactively and say, hey, I saw something you did and I think we should do it too. Or they come to a realization that they're reaching sort of the edge of how they can conversationalize something and that, you know, they've come across conversation design externally from Salesforce. But then there are also teams that I work with where they didn't even know that their conversation design existed at Salesforce. And I don't really blame them because it's a huge company and it's only been around for about five or six months. Um, 
and that's the time where I kind of try to, because I totally empathize with that, um, that sort of conundrum of like, okay, we want to make it better, but you're asking for a ton of work. And that's almost, I feel like my, I was able to sort of develop this skill through my work as a user researcher, because as a user researcher, you're supposed to advocate on behalf of the users and, and drive the experience toward benefiting them as much as possible. And sometimes the recommendations you make as a user researcher require a lot of effort. And so I had to really think about, okay, well, how do we, how do we think about an MVP when it comes to recommendations? Or how do we sort of negotiate the balance of this against what I think the users need? And that's how I approach new teams with conversation design as well, where I think, okay, maybe you can't conversationalize all of your articles at once, but what are your main intents that you're targeting? And then what are the articles that, that relate to those intents? And then how do we focus on those? Or if you're going to be building a new bot and you want to make it a strong conversational experience, rather than starting from scratch, how can you leverage the components that I've already built in other bots so that we don't have to start from zero? Um, or if it's something where they're like, oh, I don't know how we're going to have process around this, I can say, well, here's the process that we've used in these other contexts within the company. To what extent does it actually sort of fit with your team and how can we kind of mold and operationalize that? Interesting. We've had some we've had some comments on LinkedIn, and and by the way, please do uh, please do comment on there if you've got any questions for Greg. Stick them down there, and we'll definitely get round to them. Uh, Leslie, I should have brought this up earlier on because it was uh, it was it was fairly early on. Uh, Leslie says, "No surprise that a linguist would be such a graceful speaker." <laughs> so oh go. wow! <clears throat> well, that's. I'm very flattered and I take flattery very poorly. So you'll see me being <laughs> super awkward about that, but thank you very much, yeah. Leslie. I appreciate there you go. that. We'll have one more question on, on Einstein and then we'll move into some yeah. of the things that you've kind of been touching on around methodologies and best practice and all that kind of stuff. So Michael Nelson, shout out to Michael, says, uh, how will Salesforce Einstein bots support voice user interfaces? Is there, do you think that that, that, that will happen or, or what? what's your thoughts on, on Einstein and possibly even, even a rebirth of the voice initiative behind Einstein in the bot builder, what do you reckon? So, how do I put this? Um, officially, our stance on voice at the moment is that we are not supporting it. Um, it's not something that we are actively building for. Um, that's just our stance. However, I, I you know I've been at Salesforce for what four and a half years now, and I. I'm a firm believer that nothing ever truly dies at Salesforce. Um, so I don't rule out the possibility that it could come back, but that's not something we've committed to at the moment. Mm. And if, if you can speak to it, why the move away or the move to not support voice? Um, I think that that decision was made sort of more holistically, and I don't have as much detail that I can share around that. Um, but I think that for now, uh, one sort of compelling thing that we're seeing is because of the adoption through chat and Einstein bots, that that is a, a key indicator that, you know, that is a, a strong priority for us. Good question, not Dustin. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> um, so, Let's 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 put ourselves in a bit of a hypothetical situation then. I mean, you've you've got some some incredible knowledge from from the linguist background and things like that, and you're obviously prioritizing your kind of users first, which I think you need to do in in, in the kind of conversational AI space because that's well, it's the same in all spaces, but but I think that it's more prominent here because when you're having an actual conversation with someone, the expectations are like up here as opposed to you can build a shit website and it's just a shit website. People are used to that, you know. Um, yeah. So it's still important to have your users at the forefront when you're building the website, but the, but the expectations are not always there. Whereas having a conversation with something, you can't help but bring that mental model across as you would have if you were having a conversation with someone. And so how do you kind of take the the stuff that you that you that you know and, and your kind of background in, in linguicism and is that am I saying that right? Is linguicism even a thing? You have made it a thing. So asking a, a linguist if you've said something right, I'm I'm not the person to tell you if it's right or wrong. Linguicism. <laughs> There you go. There we go. I like I'm, it. I'm reading an interesting book, which is um, you probably obviously know it. You know, is it Steve Pinker? The stuff of oh, thought. Okay, yeah. Stuff of thought, yeah. It's pretty intense, pretty heavy. Uh, I would recommend it if you definitely want to dive right into imagine. the heart of this stuff. But uh, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's pretty intense. But um, but anyway, uh, I digress. 
tell us tell us a little bit about you know your how how your background in linguistics has helped as a conversation designer, and then we'll move into your practices and processes and and some of the ways that you go about kind of creating conversations and advising people to do so. Sure. Um, it's interesting because I think a lot of folks have been giving me comments like, oh, you must have seen the future. Or you must have known when you studied linguistics and majored in linguistics to pursue that path. And at the time, I totally didn't. I studied it because I got dumped over IM chat and I wanted to figure out how I understood that it was coming. Um, and that's something that I think is, you know, I just have always sort of followed my own interests and then it developed into what it is now. But I think that particular sort of core motivation for me studying linguistics really is what helps me in conversation design. The idea of how do I leverage what I can actually tangibly see and measure in the language to better understand what's going on with the relationships between the people involved. And when it comes to conversation design, I just think of it as, okay, what if I swapped out one of those people, participants in the conversation with a machine? And I think that uh, it's a jump in logic to assume that you would essentially try to make the bot human. That's not the goal. I think you hit the nail on the head earlier, Kane, when you alluded to the idea that conversation itself, it's a practice, yes. And because it's a fundamentally human practice, we as humans have expectations about how it works. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we want the bot to portray itself as human when it's not. We want the bot to adhere to human expectations of this human behavior. And so it's a fine line of being able to essentially say, okay, the bot is able to adhere to expectations about turn taking or how much, how long of a pause you leave or um, whether or not you put a period at the end of your message in an utterance. All of those things do a lot to shape the alignment between participants in the conversation and communicate something about the status of the relationship. Uh, sociolinguist by the name of Deborah Tannen, she calls it meta messaging. Um, in her research, where based on the decisions you make and what you essentially do with your conversation in interaction, those send meta messages to the other person about the status of, of the interaction at hand and more broadly, your relationship. And I think that's really where I find the strength of linguistics for conversation design. As a designer, as an interaction designer, I want to know okay, what is the objective of this interaction? What are we really trying to do with the user? Because every time you say something in conversation, yes, you might be talking about something and topic is important, but that's only one half of it. You're also doing stuff. So I'm not just talking about yogurt. I am telling you how to make it. And how do I tell you how to make yogurt without coming across as pedantic or coming across as, you know, putting you down? How do I do that well we have to tweak something about the actual discourse of the conversation maybe instead of saying do x i could say try x where it softens it a little bit or maybe i don't use periods at the end of my messages or maybe i include emojis there's all these different interactional levers we can pull for the sake of achieving strategically an interactional outcome and that's where i think the biggest influence is Mm, interesting. Have you ever been dumped over chat, Winston? Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> never have. Never have. I hope I never will. Uh, but I was going to ask you, Greg, have you figured it out? How can how can someone tell that they're about to get dumped? <laughs> so I I don't know that they can tell whether or not they're going to get dumped per se. There's no like direct line. But the way I was able to figure out how I was keying into it is because I noticed a shift in how the other person was using their language. So previously um, I was chatting with this guy and we would not use, um, you know, our, the traditional writing conventions. So we wouldn't, maybe there's no apostrophe in, con, you know, uh, contractions, or maybe we don't use commas or periods in our sentences. And then all of a sudden, as we started having more arguments or whatever, he shifted and things became more formal where he capitalized the first letter in a sentence and had a period at the end. And I was like, whoa, what is that? And the, it's essentially that shift where you're going from whatever you are um, sort of considering to be the standard baseline pattern and then deviating from that. And when you deviate from that, that signals something. So 
given that our previous standard was, okay, you know, we're, we're casual, we're not doing all of these, you know, um, sort of professional or traditional conventions in writing in our chatting style, by moving to this more traditional format, it essentially feels more formal and formality implies distance. And that's how I was able to kind of feel it coming. Interesting. I'm always fairly formal with my texts. And that's okay. <laughs> no, I think I don't think it necessarily means distance in formal text. Like if that's if I think it's more about deviating from your baseline. So if your baseline is that level of sort of um, like formality, I hate to use the word formality, but you know that standard. Um, but then maybe you use an emoji or use an exclamation point. Then it really means something. It will really sort of highlight or emphasize the enthusiasm you might have for a particular thing that you're communicating. Exactly. That's what, Ken, what it's all about. Can do you end your sentences with periods? I do. Yeah. I even, yeah, me too. Right? I, I think that makes us old. I think that, I think that's I think uh, what does. is a mark of. Yeah. I, I, I swapped from like the cool text chat, you know, like when you say later and you put L8R and stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, I, I veered away from that a while ago, but now I dictate stuff most of the time. Hmm. So Dustin, you've, oh. probably seen, you've probably seen evidence of my sloppiness sometimes in WhatsApp. Um, no, I've actually never noticed. It's been good. Because that's because I still announce the punctuation. Mm, so wow. I'll say, I will say full stop new paragraph and I'll say call on speech mark and I'll say all of that stuff while I'm talking, you see. And I think that indicates like perfectly the idea that it's in, like that those things are important to you. They are clearly part of your conversational style and how you communicate. And so you want to make sure that those, you know, textual conventions are present in your utterance, even if you're dictating over voice. And I think that's a really key style of like, there's nothing wrong with including all of the, you know, traditional conventions in text messages, but it actually really means something to us when we communicate the way that we do. And I don't know that it's necessarily a, that is a constraint, but more like who are the groups that I spend time chatting with? Um, like I think with, you know, conversational style over voice is more geographically constrained um, because it's, you know, we develop our conversational competence through the communities with whom we grow up talking and spend time talking. And so that's kind of constrained by geography. But when it comes to the online space, there's no real sort of borders or barriers in that regard between, you know, I can be chatting with someone in Algeria and it's not, it, I don't have to fly there to do it. Um, and so by sort of that measure, I think that it's more about how your, your conversational style in text-based chat evolves with the groups with whom you usually chat in conversation. Um, I think that's more of an indicator. Um, like for example, my mother, I mean, she's from an older generation, yes. And when she first started texting, and my mom's from the Philippines, uh, when she first started texting um, with my family, um, she would essentially use all of the, you know, standard conventions as if she was writing something to be published, like in a newspaper or writing for a letter or something like that. Um, and then as she spent more time texting with her coworkers and colleagues and friends, either at work or from, you know, back home in the Philippines, I noticed her conversational style over text started to change. And she started to use more uh, contractions and abbreviations and ellipses. If you're interested in that type of phenomenon, there's a great book called Texting the Great Debate by David Crystal. He's a linguist based out of the UK. Um, and it's a great book. Um, but she started doing more of those quote unquote textisms. And I was very surprised. I was like, I didn't teach you this. Where did you get that? Um, and now I, I definitely feel when I'm texting my mom, I'm like, I better put that heart emoji in there. Um, Cause I don't want her to think I'm not, you know, excited to talk to her. My, my landlord actually signs his text. So that's, that's oh, wow. Yeah. He, yeah. he says, hello, Mr. Coates. Paragraph, paragraph, sincerely, um, and then his name. Really? But, yeah. um, so yep. my landlord has a defined style about him, but yes. uh, these companies that are getting into conversational, they don't have a defined style necessarily already. And even it's the advanced ones that have a writing style guide for their blog, for, for their copy on their website. So how do they go about defining their conversational style? And I'm wondering also, are there... 
certain axes that they look at. I know you said you were loath to use formal versus informal perhaps, but are there different axes that a company looks at when they're defining their conversational style? Yeah, I think that they may not necessarily think of it as conversational style, but regardless of, I think, the size of the company, there is some some person or some entity at the organization that devotes uh, intentional thought and strategy toward brand and marketing. And that's really where I think an anchor can kind of start where, you know, even if you're a small company, how you sort of communicate your, your, your brand on Instagram or on Twitter, or, you know, even on a website, those are all quite intentional. And I think that that's sort of where the core of conversational style would come from. And oftentimes when I'm talking with our customers and I have essentially a worksheet and a workshop for conversational style that I will take customers through where at the end their asset that they walk away with is essentially a brief style guide. Um, And I think that's really sort of where it starts is a discussion about, okay, what is the voice and tone of your brand? How do you articulate that in text? What would you say in order to communicate, say a greeting? Would you say, hi, how are you doing? Or welcome to whatever company, or would you just get straight to the point by saying, how can I help you? Um, what do you tell your, your service agents to say and how to say it? Because usually with customer service, you're giving them some kind of guidance about how they should be talking to the customers. So there's already semblances of that that we can pull from for conversational style for your chatbot. And then it'll be about very clearly articulating, given what the brand voice and tone is, what then should be the personality or the conversational style of the bot? I think that when people say the bot should have a personality, they really are indicating conversational style and having essentially a a core resource about, you know, how do we use emojis in chat? How are we going to convey enthusiasm? How are we going to convey respect or deference or or apologies all of those essentially should be in the style guide and that's what they get out of the workshop interesting so once i'm I'm assuming that's kind of one of the first things that you might do is is to figure out you know before you write a line of dialogue uh what what does this thing need to sound like or what does it need to appear like i appreciate that that how things sound and how things read are different so designing a chatbot you might be having slightly different discussions than you might do if you're designing a voice uh, assistant but still along the same lines and, and along the same vein um once you've kind of got that, then you've you've gone through this this kind of workbook. You've you've got an idea of what the personality or the persona of this this kind of bot is going to be. This style that mm-hmm. it's going to have. What's your what's your kind of process then? Is there a process before that before you even get to the conversational kind of store, tone and, and style? Is there anything you want to talk to us a little bit about what happens before you get to that point, and maybe we'll move on after that point. Sure. I think before getting to the conversational style part of the process, the first part of the process for me is trying to get a sense from all of the stakeholders who would be involved in the bot implementation of what's the goal, what's the, you know, the experience goal, what's the business goal, and how does, how do the two of them sort of relate to each other against our bottom line? So, Um, I like to sit down and talk with the product manager or product owner for the bot implementation to figure out what are you hoping to do with this? Um, And then ideally, if there's a user researcher involved or maybe even a market researcher, someone who knows something about the market, the customers, your target audience, I want to find out from them, okay, so what are their values? What are their needs? Um, And then figure out how to align those as much as possible. So it could be that the product manager wants to take it in the direction of a customer service bot and that you, you know, want to help with, uh, essentially trying to create a case, but then maybe you're finding out from user research that that's, yes, that's a top intent, but that there are other similar intents that you should consider, but they don't necessarily fall directly in customer service. Um, I think talking with the customer service team as well might be helpful because a lot of times what I've seen in my research of customer service organizations, they also run into your occasional sales related intent where they want to learn about a product or they want to connect with somebody to talk through pricing of some kind. And so they either have to handle it themselves or they route them to a salesperson. That might be something to consider about the scope of the bot um, that, you know, I would explore with a product manager. Um, also on the development side. So like if there's a developer who's involved figuring out, 
okay, what's the developer's bandwidth and how much complexity can I get away with on the platform side? So I could ask the user in the conversation design, you know, uh, I can create a case for you. What do you, what's your, what's your issue? Um, but then making sure that that gets written to the Salesforce platform is a bit heavier of an ask in terms of engineering. And so I think that I tend to talk to those stakeholders to figure out, okay, what's the scope here? Um, and figure out, you know, are we going from there? Okay, should we go toward more of a menu-driven bot? Are we going to do some sort of hybrid between menu and intent-based bot? We're likely not going to do an intent-based bot right out of the gate. Um, and then start the strategy discussion from there. What should the sort of information architecture kind of look like? How are we going to source our intent data? How are we going to source utterances in, an, in a fair, ethical, uh, and legal manner? Um, and then that's essentially when we move on to uh, conversational style. Cool. How do you go about doing those those things then in terms of like, you know, sourcing utterances and, and doing all of that kind of, and maybe that's a bit further on in the, in the journey, but that's a question that I get asked all the time is where do you get this kind of training data from? Um, and there's, there's lots of companies do it different ways in terms of, you know, some of the, if you, if you're doing a chat bot, for example, uh, you know, you could potentially have the bot live in a live chat first and, and then run that for a month or two and get some actual data listening to, com- you know, listening to the um, call recordings and stuff like that through customer service and, and scanning through emails and stuff like that but um mm-hmm. is there anything is there anything else that you tend to do to, to generate that kind of insight yeah i think one thing if you have the budget for it there are other vendors out there who you can hire who will help source data um as a linguist sourcing language data is something that i've had experience with and so i have sort of my own perceptions and 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 ideas about how i think it could and should be done um, because it's really important to me to make sure that when you're sourcing intent and utterance data, that it's representative of highly diverse population of conversationalists. Um, we don't want to oversample from just one particular conversational style or for one particular cohort of speakers or, or people who chat. So thinking through how are we going to strategically seek out these traditionally underrepresented communities in our intent set. Um, that's something that whether I'm doing the intent collection myself or I'm working with a vendor, I push really hard on um, where I ask, okay, like, how are you going to get to users who, you know, talk like this? Um, I think another angle that I sort of consider to be sort of my secret weapon with, um, and it's not so secret, it's public, but um, the Linguistic Data Consortium out of, uh, it's based out of the University of Pennsylvania in the U.S. And it's essentially just a library where if you subscribe to the library, you can download whole corpora um, of linguistic data. Some of them are tagged, some of them are not, but like particularly in the United States, um, the Southern dialect of American English is highly, highly underrepresented in voice data. And so there's corpora on the LDC, the Linguistic Data Consortium for precisely that. so I would consider those to be sort of my main strategies. Interesting. That's good. We'll put the links to those things in the show notes. Um, so so you've gone through the, the, the kind of setup, if you like, the understanding the business needs, understanding the user needs, understanding the input from customer service in terms of the kind of routine stuff that they deal with. You understand the kind of technical complexity or, or capability of the, the technical team that are going to be building this. So you've kind of got a feel for the kind of thing that you need to build. Uh, you're then moving into to understanding how you might go about kind of collecting your intents and utterances. Do you, at that point, are you kind of, have you still not, not arrived at a use case yet? You're still kind kind of edging towards finding out what those use cases and what those intents should be? Or do you, do you often have like the product owner say, look, we need to do these three things. Like how do, how does the use case definition come about usually? That comes about early on in the process for me. Um, like when I had mentioned, when I'm talking with the different stakeholders, like product engineering, data science, uh, user research, um, that that's really where I drive the discussion around, okay, what is it that we're actually trying to solve with the user? Um, I think that oftentimes, you know, you don't want to kind of go too broad and try to touch everything under the sky. And so particularly for a strong MVP, you want it to be tightly scoped and with 
conversation in relation to customer service, I think the tighter the scope, the better in terms of driving transparency and trust with the user. You don't want to sort of set expectations with the user to be so high that the bot will consistently disappoint them because of what its actual capabilities are. Um, so I think getting really crisp in the beginning about what is it that we're actually trying to do? Like you want to do a customer service bot, great, but what about the customer service experience do you want to satisfy? Do you want to help the user return an item? Do you want to help them check their order status? Do you want to help them report an issue? And I think in that process of trying to figure out what the, the use case is, I, more accurately, I think the intents that we're going to target with the bot are, that's when I also sort of really drive teams to get extremely specific. Like oftentimes I think there's a conflation between intents and entities where, you know, the intent is the thing that you're trying to do. The entity is the thing that you're doing it to. So you wouldn't want to necessarily call your intent order status because like I said, with conversation, everything you say has action to it. So what is it that you're doing to the order status? Are you updating the order status? Are you checking the order status? It's really important to clear that um, that sort of threshold. And so oftentimes what I'll do is I rec recommend whether it's internally or to customers, start your intent with a verb. That is the clearest way to is express what it is that your bot can do for the user. So that way it maps to what their actions are. Um, you know, with if you if you just put password in a menu, I have to then ask a bunch of additional questions to figure out what it is that you want to do with the password. And it's much, much, I think, clearer if you say reset password instead. That's a good idea. Start your intents with a verb. I like that. Yeah. Uh, Paul Sweeney, shout out to Paul. He said, uh, fantastic points on the intent and utterance collection collection and diversity. He also had a comment earlier on, apologies, I, I didn't see that. It was uh, related to the being dumped. He said that he's been dumped off of chat, but not over chat. Okay. <laughs> so here we go. Fair. Yeah. Um, so... Okay then. So, what happens next? What? How do you approach the once you once you've figured out your kind of like intents that you're working with? You've figured out the scope of of what you're trying to achieve. You've got your conversational mm -hmm. style, and you understand you know the the vibe that this thing is going to have. What's the next step? How do you actually start the 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 physical design process, the the writing of the dialogue, and and, and, yeah. and testing? How does all that kind of work for you? So. The way I like to start is from as many existing components as possible. Um, it's interesting. I, if you haven't seen the, um, there's a show on uh, Amazon Prime called Making the Cut. And it's essentially like the Amazon Prime version of Project Runway. Um, it's a competition fashion show where uh, designers will get together and make garments and then compete for a prize. And it's hosted by Heidi Klum and Tim Gunn and... One thing that I thought was really interesting about making the cut was that it was, there was a clear divide among the contestants of designers who could sew and designers who could not. And at some point, the designers who could not sew ran into a real challenge um, where all of a sudden they have to figure out how to create a pair of pants, even though they know how to draw one. And so what they would do is they would cut along this, you know, sort of cardboard pattern of a pair of pants. And for some reason that really stuck out to me. Um, I can't sew worth a darn. So that I thought was actually really cool. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to conversation design, I thought, okay, what would a pair of pants pattern look like for conversation design? So that way you don't have to do everything from scratch every single time. And that's where I started developing more of a conversation design library of components, whether it's whole dialogues or parts of dialogues or utterances where I can then start to reuse pieces of it in new designs and we don't have to start from scratch. So as I do every sort of conversation design consultation internally and externally, the design process becomes a lot tighter and crisper because we have these pre-validated components that have been essentially evaluated by our content experience team for UI text review, but also through usability testing. Um, so I start off with whatever components currently exist and then whatever doesn't exist, whatever net new thing we're going to produce, then I dive in and actually start producing the discourse for that against what we have in the information architecture. So whether it's intent-based or role-based, that will essentially 
kind of constrain how I go about how open-ended essentially I make the conversation design and then in situ of the discourse itself that's also where I leave notes for the developer the rule logic needs to work like this so we need a salesforce flow for this kind of thing and this is how it's supposed to like what it needs to write against the platform or call from the platform um and so once i've sort of collated that doc i i tend to do that more in like a spreadsheet because i'm a researcher <laughs> at heart um and that's an easier way for me to kind of segment it and allow other stakeholders to leave comments as i go through it and then after that, we go through revs and revs, a review of the actual discourse or the copy. And then once we feel like we're in a more solidified state, then we move it over to a sort of um, source of truth document that has all of the UI text in relation to this particular implementation, the variable labels, the names of the dialogues and the conversation design. And then we go through a CX review. Interesting. Yeah, what's interesting to me is the big takeaway I have here is because you were talking about uh, don't try to do too much at once. Uh, really just build an MVP, start with the core functionality. Uh, it sounds like you're building um, dialogues that people can reuse, which sounds a lot like a UI library as well. So yeah. what it's sounding like to me is this is just building a product. Uh, we, we think about voice, we think about conversational <laughs> as, yeah. as, as different and unique, but this is just building a product. I think that the core process is certainly the same. Yes. Um, I think the differences are more around like um, sort of what are the nuances of how it's going to get realized in discourse. Mm -hmm. So it's the front end that is going to, that's where it sort of differentiates. But yes, I think the core of it is just product development. Interesting. It's, have you come across the, the core core hub? Yes. Yes, I have. Yeah. That's quite cool. That, that's probably it. Well, whether it's a place to start or whether it's a place to to end, I think it maybe is up for debate. It sounds as though the, the kind of libraries that you might have are kind of like related to core customer service query based things. Whereas in the core core hub is there's a lot of there's a lot of good stuff there, but quite a lot of it can be things like how do you answer like how are you and stuff like that. You know, like the yeah. the, the nice kind of fluffy bits that make the experience really nice, but not the core kind of things. So when you talk about like your this library is is that like the core action stuff like you know customer service based discourse to use your kind of terminology or is it also yeah. the the kind of fluffy stuff as well i think that the the fluffy stuff is less sort of i, I don't necessarily i think i see the fluffy stuff is more like spread out across the entire library where um i see sort of conversation across two axes there's um, sort of the relationship layer of like rapport building, the extent to which you want to build rapport with what it is that you're saying, and then the transaction layer, the extent you're trying to accomplish a thing. And when it comes to customer service, sometimes the two of those can be in conflict because if you want a quick resolution, but you also want to develop a relationship with the customer, well, developing a relationship with the customer takes utterances and therefore takes time which is then working against the transactional layer of trying to then get it done quickly. And so I think that you kind of need a balance of both. Um, the way I kind of try to express the relationship layer in conversation design, because conversation, conversation or customer service is so transaction oriented, is that I try to kind of embed it in the conversational style. So one key thing that stands out to me in conversation design that I think, or particularly from linguistics that I think is a great differentiator is discourse markers. So we're sort of trained, you know, growing up that when you're talking, it's important to not use filler words like, um, uh, like, well, so, but, you know, oh, um, all of these words kind of detract from the experience and they distract from the list. They distract the listener from what it is that you're trying to say. But actually, they go about 50% of my vocabulary, those. <laughs> but and that, I think that's because they're super important. <laughs> like actually what uh, a linguist by the name of Deborah Schifrin discovered in her seminal work, Discourse Markers, is that those filler words actually have function that you show the relationship between information that's communicated in conversation by using those words. So if you want to indicate, for example, the sort of realization or, or assumption or not assumption acceptance or of, and um, intake of information, the word O is really great for that. Or if you want to show a cause and result effect, starting with the word so is really great for that. Drawing attention to something with the word like. 
um, all of those different discourse markers have function. And I find it very interesting because when I put them in my conversation designs, it's like I get this sort of implicit feedback from my stakeholders like, oh, gosh, this just sounds really natural. And I'm like, it's really just the discourse markers. <laughs> like I put an O in front of the original question and here we go. Um, so they go a really far way in terms of creating that naturalness um, that I think I consider that to be a component as well. Where are you strategically going to drop discourse marker components throughout your conversation design? Um, and I think that particularly when it comes to conver uh, conversation for customer service, you want to be able to sort of balance that. I think a couple of caveats I do have for discourse markers is that you'd probably use them a lot more in voice than you would in chat. So with chat, again, because you don't want the user to have to read so much that you may not use discourse markers quite as frequently. But with voice, because it's ephemeral and they're not necessarily having to read through a transcript to get through it, that you can use them more and create that sort of that that lubrication for the conversation. But I do think there are some discourse markers that are off limits for digital agents. Um, so, for example, hmm, um, uh. Those are all ah. Uh, those are all discourse markers that convey cognitive processing or thought. And it, in using those through a chatbot or through a voice assistant, you're going to trigger the uncanny valley with a user because the user knows that they're talking to a machine and they know that the machine is incapable of that kind of cognitive processing. Mm. And so you kind of want to stray away from those. Like you can get away with oh because it has more to do with essentially conveying that the, me the message has been understood or that the information uptake has occurred. But you don't want to use hmm, because it almost implies that the bot is thinking or making some kind of assessment of what it is that you said when it can't. That's interesting, because have you noticed, Dustin, that Alexa does often, every now and then, if you ask for a skill or something, it goes, hmm, I'm not sure I have that one. Mm, yeah. Ah, and yes, you're right. Yeah, and and it kind of it's interesting because I suppose that in in some cases I'm just trying to wrap my head around it. In some cases, a voice assistant might want to have that kind of human-like sort of relationship. It sounds a little bit more natural than it does if a if a chatbot was to say, "Hmm." Um, I don't know. I don't know if it works or not. To be honest with with Alexa, it's interesting. Yeah, interesting. I'll have to pay attention yeah. to that. I'll have to pay attention to listen yeah. to that. Um, at the very beginning, you mentioned. I know. I know we're kind of knocking on for time. I've got one last question. If we have, sure. uh, if we have time, because at the very beginning, I think this will round it out pretty nicely. You mentioned that um, part of what you also are doing is around measuring conversations and understanding mm, yeah. what makes a good conversation and, pr and either proving or, or understanding whether the things that you're doing and, and advising on are actually doing the job they should do. So, mm -hmm. what? what makes a good conversation and what kind of things are you measuring when you measure the success of a conversation? I think for that, it's really about drawing from what I understand from conversational style. That's where I like to, because conversational style, that's also Deborah Tannen's work. Um, and in actually the name of the book, <laughs> conversational style, and she writes it in a really accessible way. So even non-linguists can read it and it's really great. Um, she also has a book called that's not what I meant, which is the more like pop linguistic version of that seminal work. But in conversational style, she outlines the key linguistic features that like people will sort of use to convey their conversational style. And I like to start from that because I, I like that the sort of ethos of her work is that there's no one right way to have a conversation that just because you're talking at the same time as me doesn't mean you're interrupting maybe you're showing enthusiasm and i think when we're sort of talking looking holistically at so salesforce has a product called call coaching on the sales cloud um product suite and essentially what that's going to help do is show analytics of the conversation at hand to help coach a salesperson for how the, the, you know, the call went. And when I was working with them and sort of talking with the, you know, UX designer for that product, I made a very strong point of saying just because they're talking at the same time doesn't mean that it's bad. Um, you don't want, like want to necessarily say that the customer or sorry, the salesperson is interrupting 
the customer when let's say they are both from New York or they both, you know, exhibit this conversational style where you should be talking at the same time. And we assume that conversational overlap is bad. Then now all of a sudden the system is going to make a judgment and say, guess what salesperson, you had a terrible call, even though the salesperson will say, no, no, that actually went great because we are matching our conversational style and we are talking at the same time. And so I think that my sort of, like the way I sort of view my role is trying to kind of expand, you know, my stakeholders mindset about, again, language use. Um, it's less, I think, about more conversational overlap and more about trying to understand how much conversational repair needs to happen in the conversation. So um, Nick Enfield is a linguist and he wrote a book called How We Talk. Um, and that's where it kind of goes into sort of the field of conversation analysis, which technically comes from the field of sociology, but linguists use it a lot in interactional sociolinguistics, and it's about the sort of pattern and structure of conversation. And in that book, I think that's where it becomes clear that conversational repair is really a clear um, core functionality of conversation, where if there's some misunderstanding or something that's not clear, we repair it by saying something to indicate that it wasn't sufficient and try to try again like oh could you say that again or i'm not so sure about that or some kind of uh rephrasing or elicitation of um uh like a recommittal of whatever was said and that i think is what allows us as humans to kind of think that conversation is perfect and it's not perfect conversation is full of miscommunication and and you know trouble and repair it's just that we know how to fix it and when it comes to a conversation that we're sort of analyzing, if there's a lot of repair going on, that could be indicative that the conversation isn't maybe going so great because now what, you know, maybe it's the, the customer, they have to do a lot of legwork to, you know, uh, interactionally to essentially figure out how to keep the conversation in line. So I'm kind of trying to draw folks a, a little bit less away from, or a little bit more further away from the idea of like, oh, interruptions and more, how much are they clarifying in conversation? How much do they have to seek out, you know, the core of whatever it is that the other person is saying? That is something that we should really measure. And key indicators of repair are things like repetition, um, where, you know, someone says it's cold in here and you, you know, you said something like it's cold in where, mm -hmm. where that's indication that I didn't understand some piece of whatever it was that you said, or negation by actually saying like, I don't agree with that, or I'm not so sure, or well, well is another, well is a great discourse marker to indicate that you're kind of trying to diverge from whatever is previously said. All of those are, are great sort of linguistic measures that we can use to show the conversation isn't maybe going as um, fluidly as you would want. Interesting. So, so what I'm hearing is that your kind of, your background and sort of like knowledge and experience with linguistics you're not necessarily coming into it and saying okay well off this with this bot it's got 10 10 intents or 25 intents or whatever how many of those intents were handled successfully how many were they not handled successfully where did they kind of drop off and then how do we sort that out you're kind of looking at the entire conversation as a whole from end to end and thinking right where are the areas where even even if the user ended up getting what they needed from it, you mentioned that one thing is to build relationship, the other one is to do the transaction. So even though users might actually be getting something from it, there still might be opportunities to improve the potential for the thing to build relationships better. Is that what I'm hearing? Precisely. And I think that that's sort of the way I, I like to look at conversation design in particular, because it could, it might, like the intent model might be working fine. The platform might be working fine. But I have essentially, uh, maybe unconsciously or unknowingly sort of railroaded the user or cornered them into giving an answer that like doesn't make sense in some way. Like maybe I asked a yes, no question when the phrasing of the buttons isn't yes and no, that sort of part of the conversation design also merits evaluation. And I think that as you deploy the bot and sort of see, okay, maybe that there's some drop off in this particular intent examining not just is it the intent or is it the platform, but also what are you actually doing in the conversation design? Is there something you missed in, you know, your CX review or in usability testing that 
is somehow confusing or or not giving enough options to your users. Interesting. Interesting. So, Dustin, did you get what you wanted from the episode? A, a better understanding of, of Salesforce, its potential for conversational AI, uh, and a little bit more about how to go about doing it? I think I got that and much, much more. So thanks so much, for <laughs> Greg, for appearing. This has been fantastic. Wicked. Awesome. Uh, it's been my pleasure. Where can people uh, where can people reach out to you, Greg? Where can people try the Einstein Bot Builder? How can people learn more about conversation design uh, from yourself, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, so uh, you can reach out to me uh, through LinkedIn. It's linkedin.com slash in slash G-A-B-4-5 or uh, gbennett at salesforce.com is my email. You can reach me through my website, gabennett.com. Um, and then in terms of the Einstein bot, I think that the best thing to do right now, just because I'm, I'm, I'm highly biased, I worked on this and I'm super excited that it's, it's being released because it's Salesforce's first conversation design that's being released, um, to the public. Um, but our Einstein intro template bot is available, um, in our winter 21 pre-release, um, org. And so if you go, I can send the link after this, but it's salesforce.com slash form slash sign up slash pre-release dash winter two one. And that's where you can sign up for a pre-release version of our essentially Salesforce um, experience for winter 21. Um, and that's where you'll be able to try out the intro template bot for yourself. Nice. Well, we'll put all them links in the show notes. Justin, before we go, there's, there's still uh, there's still quite a few people tuning in. Any further updates on the Alexa event? Have you caught anything else apart from the spherical uh, echo? I have not, but I will have to follow up soon. It, uh, hopefully, lots of lots of new updates like there were last year. I think. Um, we might have to do a rundown next week to to run through some of the things that have uh, that have been in been announced. Um, and speaking of uh, things that we'll have to do, uh, which we will be doing, which is next week on Thursday, same time, same place, same bat time, same bat channel. Uh, I don't know if you do you used to watch the old Batman films, old Batman programs. You must have totally. Done. Yeah. I used to watch a ton of ones yeah. at my grandma's house. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same bad time, <laughs> same bad channel. Uh, we'll be speaking to Charlie Cadbury of Say It Now, who was one of the few lucky people to get Innovate UK funding around the time when COVID was happening. You know, they give Innovate UK, I think they had, I can't remember how much they had, but, you know, hundreds and hundreds of companies mm. uh, bid for money. Not very many of them got anything. Uh, Say It Now did get something and they've been working in collaboration with DAX, the digital audio, uh, digital advertising exchange, with Global Radio and a whole series of charities running adverts on smart speakers to encourage donations to charities through skills on Alexa. And so we're going to be talking to Charlie next week, uh, same time, same place, about all of that and crucially about what the impact has actually been. Have those advertisements led to an increase in donations for those charities and does that have the potential to increase people's confidence in transacting with their voice on these platforms? Before we do go, though, Greg, thank you so much for joining us. It's been absolutely immense. I've learned a hell of a lot. I think that I'll definitely stick all of those links. I mean, you've mentioned God knows how many books there. I'll have to probably go through and, and <laughs> list them all out. I've been taking notes as I've been going, so we'll definitely list all them books. Right. Uh, the Linguist sure. Data Consortium is, is, is definitely something we'll, we'll include in there as well. Uh, I'm going to include all those links that you mentioned at the end as well. So, yeah, from, from us here, thank you very much for joining us, Greg. And thank you all for listening. Uh, thanks for tuning in on LinkedIn. Thanks for tuning in on, uh, on YouTube. And hopefully we'll see you next week. See you soon.